Welcome to the Miss Medical Podcast, Diagnosis Flatline. I'm your host, Destry Godwin. Miss Medical explores stories of misdiagnosis, malpractice, mysteries, and misogyny. You're my interns, and this is where true crime and medicine collide. This is Miss Medical. Today's story takes us to Wallingford, Connecticut, USA, in April of 2021. There we meet Carol Proto, a healthy 77-year-old mother and grandmother. In her younger years, Carol raised two daughters, Alicia and Maria, and owned a local gas station. Her business was an important cornerstone in the small community of 44,000 people. As she grew older, she made sure to still take care of her health. While losing her husband three years prior had been a difficult experience, she kept focused on her independence, her hobbies, and her role as a grandmother to four grandchildren. She kept active and was even excited about a new Apple Watch she had received that would help motivate her to stay active. She loved to pass her quiet time knitting and was working on making a blanket for each of her grandkids. On April 2nd, 2021, Carol went to the Griffin Hospital for a routine diverticulitis surgery. She was otherwise healthy and expected to be discharged only two days later. If you don't know what diverticulitis is, it's a common condition as people age where strain on the intestines and the colon can cause these little pouches to form along the walls. These pouches themselves are generally pretty harmless, but they can sometimes catch waste product that becomes infected when it's unable to escape from that pouch. This infection is diverticulitis. Carol wasn't particularly concerned about the surgery, especially since both of her daughters, who happened to work in healthcare, promised to be by her side throughout it all. When Carol came out of her successful surgery and was recovering, her daughters became concerned when she continued to require supplemental oxygen therapy and was having fluctuations in her blood pressure. They brought these concerns to the staff, who assessed Carol and assured the family that these symptoms were common after surgery due to the prolonged effects of anesthesia. Carol just needed some more time to rest and she'd be back to herself in no time. The next day, April 3rd, Carol was not back to herself. In fact, she was showing even more alarming symptoms. She was still struggling to keep her oxygen levels up, despite still being on oxygen, and she was starting to show signs of confusion, presumably from a lack of oxygen. She also had significantly decreased urine output. Laboratory testing at this point showed her kidney function was at only 50% of what it had been before surgery, and she had a sharp rise in white blood cells. Her blood pressure continued to fluctuate, at times registering so low that it could not sustain tissue survival. Staff at this point suspected something was wrong. 
and they suspected it was a urinary tract infection, so they ordered a urinalysis. The results showed a high amount of white blood cells and bacteria. Perhaps the most concerning, though, was her lab results this day, which showed Carol had lactic acidosis, which is an excess amount of lactic acid. As a quick crash course on what that means, lactic acid is a substance produced by the body when cells respire anaerobically. And that's really just a fancy way of saying your cells are using energy without enough oxygen being supplied. So in order to generate that energy, your body is breaking down stored glucose without oxygen, and the byproduct of that process is lactic acid. This would be a common process during strenuous exercise when your muscle output demand is higher than the amount of available energy and oxygen. Think of when you're working out really hard and you're breathing really heavy, but it feels like you just can't get enough air in. Apart from muscles, red blood cells also produce lactic acid since they only respire anaerobically. They lack a mitochondria or a powerhouse of the cell. Many species of bacteria also respire anaerobically and produce lactic acid, which is usually a key process in foods like buttermilk, yogurt, and sourdough bread starter. For normal people, lactic acid is quickly broken down into more simple molecules, and our livers and our kidneys do their tough work of processing those, converting them right back into glucose. In Carol's case, her low oxygen levels were contributing to excess lactic acid being produced, and because of her reduced kidney function, her body also wasn't able to clear that back out. The risk of lactic acidosis is that it accumulates in the blood as an acid and it can alter your body's pH to life-threatening levels. So going forward another day, we're on April 4th and the results of the urine culture came back showing gram-negative rods, which is bacteria that is antibiotic-resistant. Carol was officially diagnosed with a hospital-acquired urinary tract infection. However... In addition to the UTI, Carol also had altered mental status, fever, lactic acidosis, hypotension, or low blood pressure, tachycardia, which is a fast heart rate, rigors, which is when you shiver during a fever, and a white blood cell count so high it had to be verified by a repeat analysis. At this point, Carol's condition was severe and dire. By later in the day on April 4th, the staff began to suspect sepsis, which is a life-threatening condition where an infection infiltrates the bloodstream. But since her sepsis screening, which is called the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome Criteria, I know that's a mouthful, so they also call it SIRS for short, her SIRS had been negative for the previous two days, and so the staff opted to order antihypertensive medication and ordered that she not be given antibiotics. Two decisions that made Carol even sicker. That day, Carol was transferred to the intensive care unit. It was there that her sepsis was finally diagnosed and she began treatment. For the record, common symptoms of sepsis include elevated or reduced body temperature, Elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, reduced blood pressure, 
reduced oxygen saturation, reduced urine production, and confusion. Does any of that sound familiar? Lab results indicating sepsis include elevated white blood cell counts, elevated lactic acid and creatinine, reduced clotting factors, platelets, and blood pH, urinalysis positive for bacteria, white blood cells, and an enzyme that's produced by your white blood cells. Carol had almost every single marker. To understand the severity of sepsis, it's important to know that the mortality rate, that is the chances that you'll die from it, increased by 8% for every hour that treatment is not started. Generally speaking, that means for most people, sepsis is fatal after only 12 and a half hours if not treated. Carol was already on day three. The SIRS screening mentioned earlier, the one staff felt she was negative on, had not been used at appropriate intervals and had not accurately applied her clinical data. These errors in the screening had falsely given a negative result. However, this still should not have prevented the staff from treating Carol proactively for sepsis, given her laundry list of symptoms which all pointed to sepsis. Sepsis care guidelines require treatment, which includes broad-spectrum antibiotics and aggressive fluid resuscitation, to begin within three hours of suspected sepsis. It doesn't even have to be confirmed. This should never be delayed for the sake of confirming a septic diagnosis. Time is critical. Miraculously, Carol survived, but it came at a price. She spent 28 days at the Griffin Hospital, most of those in the ICU. In that time, she suffered from shock liver, which is a liver injury caused by insufficient blood flow. She suffered kidney failure, respiratory failure, heart failure, acquired cardiomyopathy, which is disease of the heart muscle, acquired clotting disorder, and ischemia, which is reduced blood flow and oxygen to her extremities. After her 28-day stay, she left Griffin Hospital strapped to a stretcher, tethered to an oxygen tank, with black gangrene covering all of her extremities, and would spend the next 10 months in rehabilitation hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. Due to the extent of the tissue death in her extremities, Carol ended up losing all four limbs to amputation. Her left leg was amputated below the knee. Her right foot was amputated at the metatarsals, which are those long bones that connect your ankle to your toes. And both of her hands were fully amputated at the wrist. In May of 2022, Carol with the support of her daughters, filed a malpractice lawsuit against the hospital and various staff members who were involved in her care, or should we say lack thereof. In their filed complaint, which is a whopping 57 pages long, they detail a harrowing statistic. According to Griffin Hospital's own data, they report correctly treating severe sepsis only 35% of the time. 
That means that in 65% of cases, they do not appropriately manage severe sepsis and septic shock. This is backed up by additional data published by Medicare that shows 62% of patients claiming they received inappropriate care for severe sepsis and septic shock at the hospital. Well, in Carol's story, she was lucky to escape this alleged malpractice with her life. I want to highlight the impact the experience had on her previously vibrant life. Carol's daughters released the following statement, quote, There are no words to describe the devastation this has brought to her mother's life. She lived independently. She loved to knit blankets for her grandchildren. She was excited to use a new Apple watch she got as she kept active. At the time of her hospitalization, mom was making blankets for each of the grandchildren. She will never be able to finish the last three, and she no longer has a wrist to wear the Apple Watch. Even the simple joy of eating an ice cream cone is something she now needs help to do. It has destroyed her spirit, her pride, and her sense of self. Our hope is that no other family has to go through this life-altering pain due to a hospital's negligence. End quote. But the deepest perspective in this story and the loss that she endured comes from Carol herself, who said, quote, My whole life has changed. I was very active, drove, very independent. I lost my husband three years ago, so I was on my own and I have my own house. And now I can't walk. I'm in bed. I can't fill my stomach. I have someone to feed me. I have someone washing me. I can't go to the shower. They have to wash me. I'm in a wheelchair. I have a walker, but it's hard for me to walk. My whole life just changed. I cried most of the time because I couldn't believe it. It's so humiliating. So I feel like I'm living for a purpose right now. And to help someone else that will never happen will never happen to anyone else. I'll be happy if I can help someone, end quote. Griffin Hospital has not filed a response to the lawsuit or issued a statement at the point of this recording. For sources and additional show notes, follow the link in the episode summary to our website. If you'd like to see pictures related to the episodes and the Miss Medical Podcast, you can find us on Instagram as Miss Medical Podcast. If you love Miss Medical and want to support the show, find us on Patreon where you can officially join the intern team. All episodes are written by myself and aim to be as factually accurate as possible. Music is an original composition recorded and produced by Jason Chamberlain. And of course, make sure you follow the podcast on your chosen platform so you never miss an episode.